0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. As we continue our study of the kings and prophets of Israel and Judah, our focus is on the prophet Elisha, the successor to Elijah. We're going to pick up where we left off with Elisha's prophecy of Israel's war against Moab and then proceed through Second Kings 4 and see his prophetic ministry on a more personal level. But first we're going to backtrack and talk some more about that story in chapter 2 about the boys and the bears. We're
1: in the section where Elisha has come in and he has taken up the mantle of Elijah. So we have moved from the days of Elijah now to the days of Elisha. What are the days of Elisha going to be like? <laughs> I'm really excited to get into that today because... uh, Let's just see what if you see what I see in it. Um, But this is the uh, the end of chapter two. Is one of those that last few verses is one that gives some people problems when they're reading through it and they say, "Oh, oh, oh, that just that just doesn't seem like God," and and you know it does it it just. That's not the thats not the God of the New Testament, sir. You know, I mean, it's just... Because we see uh, he went out from Bethel and as he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount But Car- So he went, by the way, his station was at Mount Carmel, that's, that's where, where he made his camp, his main base camp, but he went on from there, and the interesting thing is, the, the blasé nature of that, you know, after this happened, and he went on up to Mount Carmel, and, did, and he did what he was on the way to do, this is just one of those things, this group of boys came out of Bethel, now, okay, let's remind ourselves where Bethel was, what was the significance of the, of the city of Bethel? This is the shrine, not to Baal, but this is where Jeroboam's golden calf altar and temple was set up and the idolatrous worship supposedly of Yahweh, the Yahweh of Israel being worshipped in the way that God explicitly said, don't do this. A place that was cursed from the beginning. If you go back to first. uh to first kings when jeroboam set this thing up prophet of god came cursed this altar this altar everybody who participates in it and everything that's involved in it is cursed well that's all well and good it's cursed but some of these people feel blessed by it because it's a, it's their living just like texas a&m is the center for the i mean it's the center of the economy for this area what Texas A&M does, good or bad, it employs thousands of people. And their livelihood depends on it. So it was in this area. The livelihood of lots of people depended on the successfulness of these altars. And for a while there, it kind of, you know, they, I think probably the worship of these altars went down. While Baalism went up. Well now, Baalism has been chased out for the most part. Not totally. But for the most part, Baalism has been chased out through the activity of Elijah. So now Baalism is going down, which means that the altar at Bethel is coming up, and they're feeling their oats. They're feeling pretty good about it. Because there are a lot of people who went back, they backed away from Baal, but they didn't turn their hearts totally to the Lord. And so, this altar at Bethel is... I mean, this, and this is a... The city, though, the altar is under a curse and everything participated is under a curse. And we read at the beginning of last, of last week's lesson that passage in Deuteronomy where the blessings and curses form the, the real uh, empowerment of the law the law is experienced in power. As blessings come into play, when obedience is done, blessing is, comes into play. And when disobedience is committed, the curses come in. And the curses are comprehensive. You will be cursed and you're coming in and you're going out. Everything you do will be cursed. Well, when Elijah pronounces a curse on these young boys... Now this is a large gang of young boys. Okay, gentlemen, what do you think is going to happen when a lot of unsupervised boys get together? <laughs> yeah. We're talking a minimum of fifty boys, <laughs> and you're talking, you're talking. It said, oh, you know, this is not, you know, youth gangs are like, listen, you who work with elementary age students know that there are even, the, there are strong older boys and strong-willed older boys who will take control of a group like this and turn it to purposes that are not wholesome, Okay? So we're not talking the kind of criminal delinquency that you could see in youth gangs. Nevertheless, you, you've got a situation here that is not good. and they're, they're coming out as a group, and they are as a group jeering the prophet of God. And make no mistake, they know exactly what they're talking about. And their reference is to this account that they have heard that Elijah has been taken up into heaven. That word is spread. And these are coming and bringing out with them the echo of what they've heard at home, which is, this is the most far-fetched, ridiculous, idiotic thing we've ever heard. Elijah went out to the desert and died, and now they're saying that God called him up into heaven. Why this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard. And then these boys pick this up and they're coming out and they are jeering the prophet of God. And they are contrasting him with the hairy appearance of Elijah. They say, go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. Basically, they're saying, get out of here. We don't want you here. We don't want, you know. And they are bringing out with them the opinion that they've heard back home. Elisha turns, and what does he do to them? Is what he does actionable? In the name of the Lord, he invokes the curse of the law upon them. In the name of the Lord, he invokes the curse of the law upon them. And what coincidentally takes place. Next. Two she-bears come out and maul the boys. Now let me ask you something. I don't know if we have any zoologists here or anything like this. I'm not a zoologist. But I've watched Nat Geo on TV.
0: Okay. Now,
1: bears do they travel in packs? No. Do they work as teams? No. What provokes a she bear attack? When a female bear attack, what provokes that? These boys when they are coming out and there happened to be now this is what's unusual there happened to be two now I don't think that they came out together again bears don't work in pairs what happened they came out and as they were jeering the prophet they came too close to the den of a mother bear and she came out and began to attack but she didn't. She didn't focus on one. She got one, and then and then just began to move very fast. The boys, what do you think they would do? Scatter. Scatter, and they would run. Which direction? The all different. They're all different. Probably though, there was one. Yeah. And what did they do? happened to run in to the toward the den of another mother bear. Really bad luck, don't you think? And the news reported this terrible tragedy. And then somebody got hold of the idea. Well, the prophet of God cursed them. Okay, now, then you've got this debate going on on, on TV that night. And CNN's got the, you know... The pro and the con about this, you know. So what do you think about this? Well, I think it was. I, I don't think this had anything to do with any curse. Well, what do, what do you think? Do you think that a prophet of God ought to curse small children? Then you've got this and that and all that. Here's a here's 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 the point that I'm making. Um. Uh, the the guy who replaced Larry King, Pierce Morgan, is that what, What's his name? Nothing. Um. Joel Osteen appeared on his program that first week that he was on. Okay, this is, you think this is a really smart move on Joel's part? And he knows these questions, he knows this question is coming. He knows. And so the question is put to him Do you have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved? Now, Osteen isn't. Our ideal necessarily of someone who stands for the fundamental truths of the gospel, but he is a Christian. And when backed into a corner, had to admit if you have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And what he got was this blast from this atheistic and unbelieving talk show host who just excoriated him and excoriated all Christianity for you know this whole idea that if, if I don't believe in your God then I'm going to hell. Now let me and he just just incensed at all of this. Now let me this is a, a response that I've gotten I've seen this ever since I really became an active witness for Christ and in high school. Everybody will go all along with you, but when you bring up the subject of damnation and hell, and this, this huge discussion is going on right now with a book that's coming out from a Christian writer, Rob Bell, who's been very influential among a lot of uh, college-age young people and, and who are wondering, oh, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to deal with this issue? Because the book that, he come, that he's coming out with is essentially what I call soft universalism. Which is ultimately, at the end of it all, everybody's going to be saved. Finally. And it all comes under the banner, love wins. It's my- it, now, here's the deal. if There is a tremendous offense that is given by the doctrine of eternal judgment. But let me ask you a question. <clears throat> if you don't believe... In Jesus Christ, and you don't believe in God, and you don't believe that there's an eternal judgment. What difference does it make to you whether I believe it? Why should you care? Because
0: they know they're wrong. They're guilty.
1: In the heart of what, the expression that I've heard, you know, from from the old-time preachers, in your heart of hearts. You know. in the heart of hearts it is in the heart of every individual we know that there is a judgment that's why it bothers people
0: when you're on the other, yeah, when you're on the other side of the fence you want to be right and so you're going to tell me that I, I'm going to go to hell if I don't believe in Jesus Christ I don't buy that dude I know I, we're going to argue you know, but it's, it's
1: more than that. Right. It's, it's more than that. It's more than just the idea of needing to be right. It's, yeah. it's the idea, I need you to be wrong. True. You've got... I need And I need you to admit that you're wrong. Yeah. Why?
0: Or else I'm doomed. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, 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 no. See, here's the deal. If we're wrong...
0: And what difference it does it make? If we're wrong, whatever goes.
1: If, it, if we're wrong... It makes no difference, whatever. So what if Elisha cursed the children? Now let me bring this up to you before we go on. In another generation, this town of Bethel is going to lose its children. Not just some of the boys, but all of its children are going to be slaughtered and their parents are going to watch it and then their parents are going to be slaughtered some of them are going to be impaled before the city wall some of them are going to be flayed alive enormous atrocities are going to be committed against them by an army that has no mercy the she bears mauled 42 of the boys The Assyrians are going to do worse than that. And the judgment will fall on that city. This is a preview. And a very lightweight preview of what is to come. People get bent out of shape because the prophet of God cursed some little boys. He invoked the curse of the law against these boys maybe it would get the city's attention because if with works of kindness which Elisha is doing all over the place you cannot get and that's what we're going to see today with works of kindness you cannot get the attention of the people perhaps with a word of judgment you can finally get their attention to see and to examine and look and to see themselves and see, I am not right with God. Chapter 3. We got started in this last week. Again, let's kind of tie up some loose ends here. And
0: the curse of the law is that if you don't believe in Yahweh, that you believe in you worship other gods, that is the curse of the law.
1: Yeah. The wages of sin is death. Do this and you shall live. Violate this, and you have entered the ways of death. Now here's the here's the deal. This operates universally because God's law isn't you know, but God revealed His law to His covenant people and these people here are God's covenant people so the prophet of God doesn't curse everybody but the curse of the law comes under the people comes to the people who have received the covenant accepted the covenant and as a nation said we all that the lord has spoken we will do he is their god they are supposed to be his people And so the explicit terms of the covenant, the explicit blessings and curses are laid out. It's much more nebulous for the nations of the world. And there are some things that God gives them a pass on, but he does not give his own people a pass on. They have a greater responsibility. Chapter 3, we go to the uh, episode because what's happening in this period of time is that Elisha there's the tra- this is the transition period between Elijah and Elijah in Elisha. Elijah is gone he's gone up into heaven Elisha is now wearing the mantle the cloak the, and with it the role he's taken on the role of Elijah now this is a daring and audacious thing it's what he asked for and he was, basically, Elijah gave him a lot of chances to back out of this. And so he asked for all of this. And he's wearing it. Now, he's got to make, you know, well, he doesn't have to do it. See, that's the deal. There's always this feeling, well, now I've got to make people believe that, I, that I'm really the guy. Well, he doesn't. I love the way Elisha goes about it. He goes about it with the simple confidence that God has, God has made me this. This is, and I'm God's man. I am not my own man. I'm God's man. And eventually, Elisha will lose his name. And even the writer of 1 Kings will stop calling him by his name and begin calling him what everybody else is calling him: man of God. <laughs> I like that. King of Moab got together. Moab had been a vassal state of Israel. Edom was a vassal state of Judah. Moab was still sending tribute to the kingdom of Israel. This is is just something that God established during the days of David and Solomon. They did not, Moab and Edom were not governed by independent, they were not independent nations, they were dependent nations and vassal states of Israel and Judah respectively well misha who by the way has left some archaeological evidence of his work and reign decided that we're going to gain independence from Israel all of this is these are things that god is stirring up god is you know under the blessing of the covenant they are going Israel is supposed to be the ruler nation of these other places. This is a promise of God. God is starting to roll back His promises. He didn't do it all at once. He is rolling back His promises and bringing them back as they have drastically become disobedient. God is rolling back His promises. And one of those things is He is permitting, He is bringing forward people who will take take control over here in these vassal areas. And in this generation, Moab Rebelling against Israel under King Mesha. So, Joram, also known as Jehoram, and by the way, the names of the kings of Judah and Israel overlap because you have a Joram, Jehoram in Israel, a Joram, Jehoram in Judah.
0: Different people.
1: different people overlapping at the same time sometimes the translations try to make up for that but actually the writer of Kings sometimes makes a point of saying you know the Jehoram in, in Judah Jehoram the son of Jehoshaphat who takes over in Judah he wasn't any different from the Jehoram who was living in Israel and ruling in Israel I think the writer of Kings makes that point in that little bit of word play and name play and sometimes the translators try to clean it up for us. I'm just pointing that out. I'm not going to make a big deal of it right now. Although I might later. I don't know. But at this point, Jehoshaphat is still ruler in Judah. Okay? He is, he's not the young Jehoshaphat that went out with King Ahab he is an older should be wiser jehoshaphat and for some reason he's not he's not wiser he's just a little more complacent and he decides he's going to he can make his own decisions about this he doesn't have to consult the lord first and so he just says, goes ahead and and uh joram says to jehoshaphat you know come with me and help me whip this guy because i mean and jehoshaphat knowing we don't need moab as another as a rival kingdom over there, and so he said, sure, I'll go with you, and said, by the way, we need to, you know, you've got Edom as a vassal state, We we need to use that as a route, and you can arrange this, and so, okay, so Jehoshaphat goes ahead and arranges, so they're going to attack the south route, which is militarily, it's a shrewd strategy. The northern route was the one more fortified, the one stronger. That was the easy way to come in, and therefore that is where Moab had all of its defenses. Didn't have any defenses in the south because there's a natural defense of mountains and desert. That was the route that they were going to take. Militarily, good strategy, but logistically intensely difficult, and they ran out of water. Which is not a good thing. (laughs) when you've got thousands of men and thousands of animals and you don't have any water and then what goes to happening the allies start quarreling with each other inevitable and so they go back and forth and Jehoram makes the statement well Jehoshaphat says you know we really ought to talk to a prophet (laughs) yeah now that he's in this situation, it finally occurs to him, yeah, you know, we should, we should have gotten the word of a prophet. And Jehoram says, what's the point? God's led us out here. The, the Lord has led us out here so he can kill us. What is he thinking of? Remember his father, Ahab? God explicitly gave a message. Yeah, I'm going to send you out there so you can get killed. I brought you out here. I brought you into this battle because this is going to be the day of your death well Jehoram is kind of bringing that and he's being snarky about it so um, Jehoshaphat says well we need to talk to a prophet anyway isn't there anybody here who said, well somebody one of the servants of Jehoram says there's Elisha who's he well he's the guy who he uh, says he poured water on the hands of Elijah that's the expression that's used which is, I think, a very vivid expression for, you know, he was, he was Elijah's aide. But it doesn't give him the, like, right-hand
0: man or successor or...
1: No, it doesn't say he was his successor, but it says, yeah, you know, I guess, that, you know, this is somebody who is as close to Elijah as we can get. Well, let's, let's, let's go with him. So uh, they brought him in and uh, verse 13 Elisha said to the king of Israel what have I to do with you go to the prophets of your father prophets of your mother the king of Israel said to him no it's the Lord who's, it's Yahweh who has called these three kings to give them to the hand of Moab Elisha said as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat king of Judah I would neither look at you nor see you dreamy a (laughs) musician. Why a musician? I think because he was agitated. I think he was ticked off just to see Jehoram standing here next to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat standing next to Jehoram as though, you know, these guys are... I don't... He's just agitated. He said, "I I need to get my spirit calm so I can hear what God has to say. Which is if this is a point that's going to be made all through this story. The word of the Lord does not belong to the prophet, it belongs to the Lord. The the Lord gives it to the Prophet as He will. Keep going. So it's the so the musician played and the hand of the Lord came upon him and he says thus says the Lord I will make this dry stream bed full of pools for thus says the Lord you shall not see wind or rain but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink your livestock and your animals they look at him like see it doesn't say that but you can say because look at what the next thing is to Elisha he's answering a question that is not vocalized Well, this is a light thing for the Lord this is nothing While he is talking up in the mountains where they can't see it, there is a thunderstorm taking place. And by the way, this is, this is typical of that climate there. There is something taking place that of course they don't have a meteorologist. They don't, you know, Elisha doesn't have weather radar. All he has is the word of the Lord. But Elisha knows. He, he just, how does he know? God's given him that word. And Elisha says, hey, this is nothing, this is a light thing. And let me tell you what the, uh, let me answer the question that you haven't asked. He will also give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Uh, if you have the NIV, what does that say? It says, it doesn't say attack every fortified city, it says what? Overthrow. Overtrow. That's not the word that's used.
0: This one says she'll strike,
1: strike or attack. The NIV goes a l- goes a little bit overboard and overinterprets that word a little bit. That's significant. I'm only bringing that up because that is a significant issue. We're going to see. This story is full of twists because you look and you see. I mean, just from the beginning. One thing is twisting into another and now they're into this situation and Jehoram is accused is saying, The Yahweh has brought us here to kill us. And Jehoshaphat and Elisha says, Oh no, no, no. Elisha's gonna save your bacon. Excuse me. That's probably not a right thing to say toward Israelites. <laughs> <laughs> but Elisha Elijah says the Lord <laughs> is gonna save your bacon here. <laughs> and not only that Elisha said yeah you're going to beat the Moabites you're going to win and you're going to attack the cities and you know what else you're going to do you're going to fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones now wait a minute the laws of war according to Deuteronomy say when you go into a land you're not your war is not against the environment cut down the trees you need to build yourselves what you've got to build in order to carry out your war but don't just destroy things don't just destroy everything but Elisha doesn't command them to do it he says this is what you're going to do he knows these guys and the Lord knows these guys. See now that should have been a gimme. That, that, that should have been something that should have been a clue because Elisha tells them you're going to do something that is in violation of the law of God and God's going to let you do it. The next morning about the time of the offering of the sacrifice behold water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. Water just comes rolling down the wadis, and every it 's just the whole area is just filled with it and they they, they come out and they, they get there fill their water and well, when the Moabites heard the kings had come up to fight against them, so the Moabites came and they, they heard okay we've they 've gotten their scouting reports, and they hear okay they 've come up through this area, and they know okay they 're probably looking for water right now, and they 're probably desperate for that, so maybe we can catch them while maybe we can catch them at this and so the Moabites are trying to mount a sneaky attack on them, and they come up here, and they, they come up, and then they see the water. They see this water that's flown down and filled the wadis. And they say, and they look at it, and the morning sun shines red on it and makes it look, which means it's probably a, just there was a haze that day. You know, that's... You know, there's. So the morning sun shines and reflects red off of the water and they look at it and it looks like there has literally been a bloodbath here. By the way, that tells you something about ancient warfare. Because they look out and they see all these pools of blood and they think... That's, that's what they think it is. That's what it looks like to them. They come up over the hills and they see these pools of blood out here. And they, and they see the, the tents of the Israelite, Moabite, Edomite, and, uh, uh, Israelite, Judahite, and Edomite camp. And they look and they see these pools of blood and they see all of the, these campments. And they look and they, they don't see a whole lot of activity. They think they've killed each other. and so they walk down they're all relaxed they're going to go and see what they can find that they left in the camp the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom mount an attack on the, a surprise attack on the Edomites as they come down and slaughter them and chase them back they still couldn't get Misha and he escaped and he escaped to this city and then they surrounded the city and Misha tried to break out and took some of his top men, his picked men and tried to break out against what he figured would be logically the weakest spot which was the Edomites the Edomites held couldn't get out. So Misha, desperate, goes up on the city wall, takes his firstborn son, who is the crown prince, kills him, and offers him as a burnt sacrifice to his god, Chemosh. Okay, now this is not infant sacrifice. But this is deliberate human sacrifice. And then the word that comes after this verse 27 and came great wrath or great fury that's the word against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. That is a vague and I think a summary of what took place in the rest of the war and that is that this is my surmise what that word means because if I'm going to I'm not going to tell you this is exact because nobody really knows for sure but looking at this and looking at the most uh, reasonable logical explanation putting things together and eliminating the possibilities that you know just aren't there Great fury, great wrath broke out. What this did was arouse the whole population of Moab so that they began to operate against just from the as an insurgency against the Israelite coalition so that maintaining a siege in Moab became untenable. And meanwhile, guess who's getting stronger up in the north? The Syrians are starting to stage raids. And finally, it just becomes, this protracted siege becomes unwinnable. And so the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom withdraw to their own kingdom and tend to their own problems because it's just not worth it anymore. Now, here's all of the irony everything that the prophet said came true and they went through this and they won the war but Israel still didn't get Moab back they won just like God said and Israel still didn't get Moab back What do you think God's doing here? Trying to get a word in to the king. Trying to let him know that God still lives and God is the one who is in charge of all of these affairs, not you. So now we turn from all of these affairs of state. All of these great political, geopolitical military affairs and Elisha he goes home to Mount Carmel now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha your servant my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves and Elisha said to her what shall, we, what shall I do for you tell me what you have in the house she said, your servant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. She said, "Go outside." He said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, not too few. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. So they went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her, and when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. He said to her, there's not another, and then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God, she said, and he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. What's going on here? Elisha is now the leader of this group called the Sons of the Prophets these are the by the way i think the reason they got their name the sons of the prophets i think these i think the original core group probably literally were the sons of prophets who had been persecuted by jezebel and many of them killed and these young men had come in to take their fathers place and they had come to study what it is to be a prophet and to study god's word and to study what it is to be a, a man of god Wouldn't it too true though if somebody an apprenticeship and whatever
0: job they took
1: on they became as a son to this
0: person? I've heard that. I've heard that. That that could be that could
1: be an emblem of also apprenticeship. I do think though that the original core group of the Sons of the Prophets were literally the sons of the prophets that Jezebel had persecuted. but here's one and here's a, here's a young man who has, has a family and he dies and we're not told why and here's the interesting thing the widow comes out and she doesn't come with any accusation she doesn't say I'm not going to believe in God anymore he doesn't have any She doesn't come with that she comes to Elisha knowing that he's the one and she so said what am I supposed to do now Elisha doesn't have anything <laughs> everything that Elisha owned in this world he burned and separated himself from Elisha owns nothing there's nothing he can he has in his hand he can give her except this he's got a word he said, what shall I do for you okay do this collect every jar, bottle vessel you can get. Don't get a few. Get a whole lot. Get all you can get. And take what you have and start pouring it into these. And as as she kept pouring, the vessels kept filling. And with that, with what she got of the olive oil that she was pouring out She was able to sell that olive oil and pay her debts off and then have a nice annuity for her and her sons to live on until they became old enough to make a living. What's being shown here? God's not going to desert those who've served him. God will not leave them alone who have served him. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And then one day Elisha went out to Shunan. I'm reading this story last night again, and I'm I'm this this is so familiar, but I'm I'm reading this and I'm this is a powerful powerfully emotionally charged story let's look at this one day elisha went to Shunem. this is on the route up to carmel it's outside of it's not far from jezreel a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food whenever he passed by she had turned he had turned in there to eat food she said to her husband behold i know this is a holy man of god who is continually passing our way let's make a let's make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him for a bed a table a chair and a lamp so whenever he comes he can go in there so they construct an apartment this is somebody with means this is somebody and by the way what's going on just the general atmosphere of what's going on in the land there's gen, there's a famine going on that doesn't mean that there isn't any food but it means prices are high, resources are scarce. This is a woman who sees, this is a man of God. I want to take care of him whenever he comes through here. I want him to know he has a bed. I want him to know he has, he has a plate of food. I want him to know he has some place to stay that's safe and warm. So, her husband said, sure. So her husband's cooperating. It's the woman's initiation... But her husband's cooperation in all of this. One day he came there, he turned to the chamber and uh, into the chamber, rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant. Now we are introduced to the figure, the character of Gehazi. Who's Gehazi? Gehazi is to Elisha as Elijah, Elisha had been to Elijah. Who's Gehazi? He's the brightest and best. Of the sons of the prophets. He's the one with the most potential. He's the one that has the hand of God on him the most. And Elisha has asked him, said, Would you go with me and help me? Oh yeah. So Gehazi has taken Gehazi has taken off and he's come with uh, with Elisha as John Mark went with Barnabas and Saul. so turned to his chamber and he said to Gehazi his servant call this Shunammite and when he called her she stood before him and he said to her uh, and he said to him say now to her now notice that this intermediary says, I, want, I want you to go back and forth there's very much this cautious distance between Elisha and this woman and there are, there's a lot of speculation as to why and some of these some explanations go on I don't think it's really all that complicated Elisha is a single man this is a married woman we are living in an age in which there is impropriety going all around and yet even the whiff of the slightest impropriety even if it's not even real is going to be trumpeted by the media of that time and say see this prophet is a hypocrite so he's wanting to make sure everything is on the up and up and doesn't, and even communicates, even talks to this woman, not directly, person to person. But has his aid bringing messages back and forth. Say now to her, see you've taken all this trouble for us, what's to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. Basically the answer says, I don't need anything, we're We're good. He said, what's to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband's old. Gehazi is an observant man. She has no son. Her husband is old. Now, what does this uncover? This uncovers something. It goes all the way back, all the way back to the story of Abraham and Sarah. All the way to the story of Rebekah. All the way to the story of Hannah and, and the birth of Samuel. So many of these things all that have come forth. There's so much that's gone in here that reveals to us this is a difficult issue for women in the present day who cannot conceive. But in those days, it wasn't just a personal and emotional issue. It was a social responsibility of a woman to bring forth children for her husband. And she was... An, and, and there was an expression of, that was a, a part of the curse of the law it says your people it's not to an individual but to the people of the, of the, it is and so you have all of this and Elisha when he had called her she stood in the doorway and he said at this season about this time next year you shall embrace a son and she said no my lord oh man of God don't lie to your servant that word is strong. In some translations, it says, "Don't mis," uh, what what is it? "Don't mislead." Words, "Don't deceive me." Don't lie to
0: me. Don't
1: lie. Don't lie to your servant. Don't lie to me, please. How many disappointments had this woman experienced in her life? We don't. We have no idea. But when he says this, it uncovers a wound in her life. And Elisha's promising that wound's about to be healed. And she'd rather leave it alone than have a false promise. The woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. great end of the story right when the child had grown he had gone. He went out one day to his father among the reapers and said to his father oh my head my head the my father said to his servant carry him to his mother when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother the child sat on her lap until noon and then he died don't know explicitly but it has all the earmarks of sunstroke It's one of those things, that's something that just happens. It's a terrible, terrible accident. Right?
0: I I risen, I said. <laughs> this
1: child, this child, this age, person this age doing what they're doing, which is what? Working out in the field. Sunstroke. Why would then the, she called to her husband, what she did, she went up, laid him on the bed of the man of God, took him up to Elisha's apartment, put him on Elisha's bed, shut the door, went out. She called her husband and said, send me one of the servants, one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. He said, why will you go to him today? It's not new moon, it's not Sabbath, it's not one of the worship days. What do you need him for? She said, the word, she simply says, Shalom. Which, in, in this case, in this context, means everything's fine. Says, okay. <coughs> Go ahead. She saddled the donkey, said to her servant, urge the animal on, don't slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out to come to the man of God at Mount Carmel man of God saw her coming, he's sitting up on the hill he looks out there, sees her coming, he says to Gehazi a sermon, look there's a Shunammite, run go, go out and meet her, say is, is it well with you is it well with your husband, is it well with the child and Gehazi went and said she saw, all she said was Shalom says it's fine, didn't slacken her pace didn't go on, she just keeps going refused to answer, Gehazi runs back when she came to the mountain to the man of God she <coughs> caught hold of his feet She got off the donkey, came, and grabbed hold of Elisha's feet and said, and Gehazi came tried to push her away. You you can't do that. That's just not... Elisha says, leave her alone. He says, she's in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me. The word of the Lord doesn't belong to the prophet. It belongs to the Lord. And he gives it as he will. Prophet doesn't have powers of his own. And Elisha is as perplexed as Gehazi is right now. He says, I have no idea what this is about. And this woman finally composes herself enough to get out a sentence. And she says... Did I not ask did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And now Elisha knows. So he says to Gehazi, Tie up your tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand, tie up your garment, man. That means get ready to run. Take my staff in your hand and go, and if you meet anyone, don't greet him. If anyone greets you, don't reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child, and the mother of the child says, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. And Gehazi went on went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, child hasn't awakened. Okay, so this is not going to be a long distance healing. And when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. Notice how that's emphasized. Didn't see the child lying on his bed. He saw the child lying dead on his bed. There was the power <laughs> of death the coldness to the touch of death and Elisha went into the house and then he shut the door behind the two of them it was just him and the boy and he prayed for the Lord and then he went up and lay on the child putting his mouth on his mouth his eyes on his eyes his hands on his hands and as he stretched himself upon him. the flesh of the child and his hands uh, the flesh of the child became warm and then he got up again and walked back and forth in the house And went up and stretched on him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. There's not any clearer sign of life than a sneeze. Corpses don't sneeze, they may cough, but they don't sneeze. Then he summoned Gehazi and says, "Call the Shunammite." So he called her, and when she came to him, she said, "He said, pick up your son." And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And then she picked up her son and went out. <coughs> now, real quickly, I'm just wondering, what do you see? Who do you see? Do you see Jesus in this room? Elisha. Elisha is not Jesus. Elisha is Jesus standing. He's Jesus representative. Eight hundred and fifty years before Jesus would stand in this place in Galilee. Elisha is standing there in Jesus' place. And Elisha is not Jesus. And Elisha's praying. And Elisha does what Elijah had done. And then he gets up and the, the answer seems to be coming but it's not there yet. And so he stands and he walks back and forth. And he prays some more. And then he goes and lies back down on the child. And the child comes to life. The power of God works through Elisha and Elisha's faith. The power of of Jesus to bring life where there's death what we're seeing the days of Elijah were days of preparation like the days of John the days of Elisha are days in which in Elijah it's like the kingdom of God is coming in the days of Elisha
0: In this episode, we've seen the strong emergence of a theme, that the word of prophecy belongs not to the prophet, but to the Lord. And isn't it interesting that Elisha made his home base at Mount Carmel, the scene of Elijah's triumph over the prophets of Baal? At this point, it seems that 2 Kings is the book of Elisha, and there's much more of this to come. Join me next time for the continuation of the adventures of Elisha the prophet. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.